Our sermon passage this morning is Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. We're picking up right where we left off last week. Philippians 3, 17 to 19. Our scripture reading, however, comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. In this passage, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul gives a little bit of, of background, a little bit of insight. He's talking to the Thessalonians, but he's referencing what happened to him in Philippi when he first visited there. And so it's helpful for us to, uh, to, to read that and to get a sense of the, 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 the dual responses that the Philippian people uh, gave to Paul and his compatriots when he first uh, went there. So again, uh, Philippians 3, 17 to 19 is our sermon passage, but we will read first 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 to 4. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. This is the Lord speaking to you. So please pay attention. Give ear to what he says. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. And now if you will please turn to Philippians 3, beginning at verse 17 and reading through verse 19. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. This ends the reading of God's perfect and holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we once again thank you for your word. We know that it is infallible, it is inerrant, it is inspired by you. We know that the Apostle Paul was born up by the Holy Spirit. And so we thank you, dear Lord, that we can trust your word. We thank you as well, O oh Lord, that your word transforms us, that it, it is used by your spirit to conform us to the likeness and the image of Jesus Christ. And so we pray, dear Lord, that you would make us more and more like him, even as your word has been read and is now to be preached. So bless those who hear, bless the one who preaches. Be with us, dear Lord, and may you be glorified in the preaching and the hearing of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in that passage that we just read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul speaks of the rough treatment that he received at the hands of some of those in the city in Philippi. And you will remember way back at the beginning of the year when we first started the book of Philippians and we read from Acts chapter 16, and we saw in detail how Paul and, and those fellow missionaries of his who went along with him, how they were treated by some in Philippi. But we also saw... and. And uh, Acts chapter 16, verse 34, at the top of your order of worship, it's a reminder that not all treated them roughly. Not all of them, uh, all of the people in Philippi treated them coarsely and rejected them, uh, threw them in jail and did those kinds of things to them. That there were some who received them well. Who received the good news of salvation gladly. 
Paul's experience when he, in, in Philippi, when he first stepped foot in that city, is representative of the two responses to the good news that God has sent his son to save sinners. Now, some will respond in faith and walk with Christ. We're talking about true faith here, true believers. And others will respond in unbelief and continue to, uh, sorry, they will respond in unbelief and continue to pursue their idolatry. Now, last week we saw that Paul was giving the Philippians exhortation through example. In other words, he was giving implicit commands, implicit uh, directives about how they ought to conduct themselves based on how he conducts himself. But this week, Paul gives them exhortation by imperative. He uses commands. In the imperative voice, he tells them what to do. In verse 17, he tells them, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, this first verse of our sermon passage contains two commands, two imperatives. Join in imitation and keep your eyes on. The imitation of Paul, which he wants the Philippians to engage in, is his forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. In verse 17, with Paul's use of these two commands, which he tells the Philippians what they ought to do to join together in imitating him and keeping their eyes on those who walk according to his example, Paul is pointing to the first of two ways to walk, which he examines in this brief passage. The first of two. The first way to walk is to walk in imitation of Paul and those others who, in fact, are imitating Christ in their walk. That's the first way to walk, and that's what we'll deal with now. He's challenging them to walk accordingly. In the first command he gives, he says that the brothers and sisters in the Philippian church ought to join together in imitating him. And, and when he says this, when he says that they ought to join together in imitation of him, Paul very well uh, may have coined a, a new Greek word there. It, this word translated join together in imitating, it is found nowhere else in ancient Greek literature. And if Paul indeed coined this word, which is a compound word made from two well-known uh, other Greek words, then he did so, he coined the word because of the circumstances he had heard about in the Philippian church. We've touched on this several times already. We're going to be getting to the passage which deals with it uh, explicitly. Uh, but Paul addresses the disunity in the congregation and he entreats two women in the congregation to come to terms with one another. You can find that in chapter 4, verse 2. We'll get to that as we've said in due time. But what Paul is saying here is that he wants the Philippian congregation to unite themselves in their imitation of Paul and to keep their collective eyes set upon those who walk according to his example. This is not an individualistic enterprise, is what Paul is saying. He is saying that the church ought not to, be con uh, not to consist of a bunch of individuals who are individually trying to follow Paul's example, to imitate him. But that they are to do so together. Rather than trying to then giving them a command that each individual member of the church could try to obey individually, Paul is giving them a command that if they obey it individually, they're actually disobeying. You see, Paul is concerned about the disunity that is in this church. He's concerned that it may break it apart. And what Paul is saying by, by 
possibly coining this phrase. He's saying that if they act individualistically in their imitation of Him, then they will not be obeying His command, which is a command of the Lord. They are one body of Christ, after all. And the fact that His second command is for them to keep their eyes on those who walk according to the example that they have in us is evidence of the fact that Paul isn't speaking egotistically in this verse. There's a pattern of life. There's a way of walking that Paul wants the Philippians to imitate together. And it's not just his way. It's it's others who are uh, on the path of faith in Jesus Christ. He doesn't want them to imitate him because he's all that. He wants them to follow the example of him and others who walk with Christ. And Sinclair Ferguson, as he so often is, is very helpful here. He, He writes in his commentary on this letter, Salvation means being transformed into Christ's likeness. God's people are therefore living illustrations, albeit imperfect ones, of Jesus himself. God makes his people display fragments of Christ's image, reflections of his glory. In them, the example of Christ's own life is reproduced. (coughs) Now you will remember that Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11.1, Be imitators of me, but then he follows it up with, As I am of Christ. But what about Paul and these others upon whom they are to keep their eyes are the Philippians to imitate? How are they supposed to follow the example of Paul and these others? Well, as hinted at earlier, we imitate Paul in the way that Paul forgets what lies behind and strains toward what lies ahead. We press on the way Paul did to make the resurrection from the dead our own. We press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. These are all things that Paul has said in the preceding passage. One commentator writes that Paul's command to them to imitate him is an appeal to live out one's heavenly citizenship in unity and accordance with the gospel. Ultimately, we can say that when we imitate Paul, we are striving to imitate Christ. Christ is not merely our example. He's not only our example. He's more than an example. The way that the the, the early 20th century liberal theologians tried to present him, he was only an example for us. He is an example, but he's more than an example. He's our Savior. But because he has saved us, because he has redeemed us, because he's called us out and given us a new life in him, we can imitate him. Why does Paul say this? Why does he tell the Philippian Christians to imitate him? To imitate these others? Ultimately, to imitate Christ? Well, examples are important in the lives of Christians. They're important now, but they were even more important then in many ways. In Paul's day, Christians did not have a complete Bible. Paul's writing to the Philippians, but the Philippians didn't have the benefit of the book of Romans or the the book of Acts. They didn't have a completed canon. They didn't have the fullness of God's revelation of himself in written form available to them. And so in many ways, they had to rely upon the example of others. And Paul is saying, if you're going to imitate anyone, just go ahead and imitate me. Imitate others. 
But having good godly role models is important for us today as well, isn't it? Sometimes you just don't know what to do in a given situation. Sometimes when you find yourself in a predicament, either you can't find a passage that deals with that predicament, or even if you can, you're not sure how to apply it to your situation. You don't know how to conduct yourself. But you do have godly examples in your life, or you need to, and if you don't, you've got to get some. How would so-and-so handle this? Maybe you could call them and ask for their advice, but if not, you can simply try to imagine how they would conduct themselves, how they would walk through such a difficult situation. It's helpful to reflect on the ways that godly people you know have conducted themselves in similar situations. Inasmuch as other people imitate Christ, we are commanded to imitate them. Now this has a converse and somewhat frightening thought. And that is that just as we might seek to imitate a particularly godly person in our lives, there are others in our lives who might seek to imitate us. Think about that for a moment. You know yourself. You know your sins. You know your infirmities. You know your own fallibility. There are other people in your life who see you as a follower of Jesus. And they look to you. And they think to themselves, what would so-and-so do? It's a little bit scary, frankly. But each one here, you have the potential for someone in your life to look to you that way. In the same way that you look to others. A couple of questions that Ferguson asks in his commentary in in this regard are, are this. Do we pray for ourselves lest we cause others to stumble by bringing shame to the name of the Lord? Do we pray that others will catch a glimpse of Christ through what we are and want to trust, know, and love him better? It's not that you want to set yourself up as an example sort of a prideful or arrogant way, but you need to realize the fact that other people may be looking at you. Do you pray that you would live your life in such a way, not to be a hypocrite, not to to act one way in front of people and another behind closed doors, but that you would have integrity? And that if there is someone looking at you and, and watching your behavior, that you would not do anything to lead that person astray. Well, then Ferguson writes, after he's asked these questions, he says, This is a responsibility we cannot avoid. It is written into the principles of the kingdom of God. We are to walk with Christ in the manner that faithful believers before us have walked with him. And we are to teach those after us to walk in the same way. There's a chain here. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are connected in that chain. You are a link In the chain. But there's another way to walk. We've already mentioned this. Paul turns his attention uh, to that way of walking in verses 18 and 19. He says, Therefore, many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Now, these enemies of the cross are the exact opposite of the ones whom the Philippians should imitate. 
rather than having a heavenly citizenship, as Paul will bring up in verse 20, they are of the earth. They do not consider the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ. They don't think about it. That is not their concern. It's not their desire. But who are these enemies of the cross of Christ? A number of suggestions as to who these enemies are have been put forward over the years. Is Paul speaking once again about the Judaizers of whom he spoke earlier in chapter 3? Are these enemies of the cross proto-Gnostics who have invaded the church? Are they Christians in name only but have never really followed Jesus? Or perhaps these enemies of the cross of Christ are former Christians who folded under the pressures of persecution and denied Christ. There have been a number of solutions to these questions, and every one of these questions that I've raised are potential solutions. But based on the fourfold description of these people, that their end is destruction, that their God is their belly, that they glory in their shame, and that their minds are set on earthly things, one commentator convincingly argues that they are pagans who have heard the gospel and rejected it. Now you'll remember that Philippi is it's a pagan city. It's a, it's a city under Roman control. It's not in, in a Christian or perhaps better Christianized part of the world in any way whatsoever. And so if they indeed are pagans to whom Paul refers, then it is striking that Paul says he is telling the Philippians about them now in tears. Perhaps it's the very people who Paul references in 1 Thessalonians 2 that essentially ran them out of the city when they were there. Paul is saying that he describes these people in tears, with tears in his eyes. Even if they are rank pagans of the worst kind, he takes no joy in describing them as enemies of the cross of Christ. And that's a characteristic of Paul's that we would do well to imitate. Paul's description of these people who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, it begins at their end, which Paul says is destruction. They will meet destruction at the end because of what Paul says next. And that is that their God is their belly, that they glory in their shame, that their minds are set on earthly things. Paul sounds like he is describing the Western world in the 21st century. He could be describing hedonists in his day. He could be describing hedonists in our day. And when he says that their God is their belly, he could be referring specifically to uh, the sin of gluttony, which is deriving pleasure from copious amounts of eating. That, that may be it, but he could also speak, be speaking more broadly here of their desire to satisfy the lusts of the flesh. And so what Paul may be getting at here is the idea of, of consumption, of, of, of gross consumption, of overconsumption of all things. I subscribe to a magazine that helps me to be a smart and savvy consumer. We can consume food, but we can also consume entertainment. We can consume products, electronics. In a sense, we consume movies and televisions. And we are regarded almost exclusively as consumers by those who are marketing their products to us. They don't see us as human beings. They certainly don't see us as human beings or even creatures who are made in the image of God. They see us as consumers. They see us as with dollar signs in their eyes. Telemarketers, 
you know this if you answer your phone. They treat us not as humans, but as consumers, which justifies to them the ways that they interact with us on the phone. They dehumanize us. They treat us as simply something that they can get money from. There are massive attempts to program us to think of ourselves in relation to our consumption of stuff. And in many ways, we're giving in. Paul says of those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ that they have essentially given themselves over to the notion that they are put here for consumption. So much that, so that their appetite has become their God. They bow down before their stomach, as it were. And that describes many, not only in Paul's day, but in ours. When Paul describes those, who, those people as, as those who glory in their shame, it's almost as if he's writing in the second decade of the 21st century, isn't it? With all of our various social media platforms available to people, their shameful deeds are paraded for everyone to see, and yet there is no shame. Acts that were formerly too shameful even to speak their names are now done out in the open. And Paul says finally that their minds are set on earthly things. And that is most definitely the case. Their lifestyle is the product of a mindset that says eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we may die. And we are hopelessly naive if we think that this mindset has not invaded Christianity, if this mindset has not invaded our own way of thinking. We are deluded. But yet for the pagan, for the unbeliever, if there's nothing after death, if there's no heaven or hell, and this, is, this one life is all that you've got to, to live, then it makes sense to live it up, to party while you still can. It makes sense to be hedonistic in every sense of the word. Of course, that really only works as long as nobody else's partying affects your well-being. And then you'll have a problem with the party culture, won't you? The party people mindset can lead to tragic consequences in this life, even if people don't believe in a next life. But while pagans and unbelievers of various stripes may not believe in an afterlife, Paul is saying that Christians do. And they, we, are to set our minds not on earthly things, but on heavenly things. We must keep our eyes on the prize, even though the world, the devil, and our own flesh, our own sinful natures are doing everything to distract us from that prize. Now, Paul has presented in these few verses a dichotomous view of humanity. Those who walk with Christ and those who walk according to the desires of the flesh. The one that you walk with, the one that you live with, that is your God. Sadly, pagans are far more consistent in their walk with their God than Christians are in their walk with theirs. But that's because pagans don't really struggle with righteousness in the way that Christians struggle with sin. There is a sense in which pagans are less hypocritical than Christians are. A sense in which that is the case. Because pagans, if, if, they're, if the restraints are, are, are gone, if, if the bonds have been loosed, if they've been turned over to their own selfish, sinful desires, they get to do whatever they want without any sense of remorse. 
But for the Christian, when we sin, we know that it's wrong. To be clear, Paul is not saying that anyone who struggles with the desires of the flesh has destruction as his end. If that were the case, no Christian would avoid destruction, not even Paul himself. Paul is speaking of those who have given themselves completely over to their sinful desires, those for whom the restraints have been lifted, as Romans 1 puts it. Paul is saying that the Philippian Christians... He's saying to the Philippian Christians, he's saying to you, that you are to join together with one another in imitating him. And so here's a thought exercise for you. Think of this church as being on a pilgrimage together. We're not individuals. We're walking down the path together. We're walking as a group on the narrow path. And we are to imitate those who have gone ahead of us, those who are in the lead in a sense, those uh, who have gone on before. We're to seek to imitate them. The distance between Paul and and us may seem huge, both in the sense of time, chronology. Paul was 2,000 years ago. We're here now, but also in terms of of godliness. And yet in, in the light of God's eternity, And in the light of his holiness, not that much time has elapsed. And Paul was a sinner just as we are sinners. It's a matter of perspective. In a sense, we can see ourselves as being on the same path together. And and Paul is there through his letters. And he's someone we can imitate. He's someone we can use as an example. And so Paul, in this passage, he is challenging the Philippians... And he's challenging us to choose whom we will imitate in our walk. Will it be Christians following after Christ himself? Is that who we'll imitate? Or will it be those who are so earthly minded that they don't know Christ at all? Their Christ is their belly. Their God is the God of the consumer. He is reminding us of who we are in Christ. He is calling us to walk down that path. Psalm 1 says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, or stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 1 gives this same dichotomous situation for humanity. You either walk in the way of sinners or you delight in the law of the Lord. But here's the thing to remember. And we sing about it every uh, first Sunday of the month. The path that God has called us down. Christ has walked it before us. And he walked it for us. Now we get to sing, we're purchased by your blood, by sin no longer led. The path our dear dear Redeemer trod, we rejoicing tread. Brothers and sisters, how can you rejoice when you walk down, when you tread down the path that Jesus Christ trod upon? How can you rejoice? What's in this knowledge? And even though there are times where you conduct yourselves, your manner of walking is, is in a, a form of imitation of the world, 
that you have failed to set your mind on heavenly things, but have instead turned your gaze upon earthly things. The fact is that Jesus Christ, in the way that he walked, in the way that he conducted his life, in the way that he died his perfect death, he has ensured that though you fail, though you fall, though you sin, though you disobey, he has ensured that the path that you are on will lead you, will lead you to the gates of heaven. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you are on that narrow path. And there is nothing, there's nothing that can knock you off of it. That, that's the good news. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you. We thank you that you have set us on this path. You have walked it before us. And that by your spirit, you walk along with us. We thank you that we have brothers and sisters in Christ to tread this path with. We pray, dear Lord, that we would obey Paul's command, ultimately your command, to join together with one another in imitating him, even as he imitates Christ Jesus. We pray that we would be united in mind and in purpose. And we pray, O gracious Lord, that you would be glorified in our lives by the way that we walk, and that others who look upon us, who know that we're followers of Christ, that others would be encouraged, that they would be built up, that they too would have an example that they can follow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.